0: Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Uh, but we're going to be in it today, and we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 8. Uh, if you don't, it's all good. We have it up on the screen. We're going to be reading we're in almost the the middle of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth and 1st Corinthians the whole chapter chapter 8 but it's only 13 verses so don't worry this is what he writes now about food sacrificed to idols we know that we all possess knowledge knowledge puffs up but love builds up the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know but the man who loves God is known by God so then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who has this knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers or sisters in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. We pray with me real quick? Lord, we, uh, we turn our faces toward uh, your story today. We turn our faces toward your letter. We ask that you reveal to us how deep your love is. We know you are a good father, and we know that we are loved by you. Would you uh, implant that truth deeper in our souls so that it would pervade out of us? And not just us as individuals, but us as your community. Would it be so clear in Hope Brooklyn that we are your children, that we are loved by you? Aid us today as uh, as we learn, and it's in your name we pray, amen. All right, so before we jump into it, a little background of of what's going on, because obviously we're talking about meat sacrifice to idols. That might sound a little foreign to us. Um, So I want to sort of create like a parallel that might make sense for our present day context. So Paul is responding to a question, whether it was through the form of a letter or through what he heard, he's responding to a question from a faction of the church who are called the Strong Christians. Now, that's that's an ironic title because as we've seen and as we'll see even more, true strength is actually voluntary weakness. I'm gonna say that again, true strength is voluntary weakness, but the strong Corinthians don't see that yet. Uh, They still think of strength as in mastery or power or knowledge. And so uh, throughout the course of this letter, Paul has been taking on various topics and sort of pointing that out. So there are these two groups, strong and weak. Now the social customs of the Corinthian society are such that you get invited to parties at local shrines to, to different gods, right? Maybe we might say that we get invited to attend a company party at a swanky club in the Flatiron District, right? And you're like, well, it's a little different because at, at the company party, at the, at the club at the Flatiron District, um, they don't serve any gods there. Well, maybe, maybe not. Perhaps there are certain values, certain idols there as well. Maybe the idols of reckless hedonism. Um, Maybe the idol of escapism. Maybe they're there and you can worship them if you want. Maybe not. Um, But there is a a, a, whether it's a shrine of um, the deity of the first century in Corinth or the shrine of the 21st century in New York City. There are certain things that we turn our hearts toward. Now, there's meat served at these parties. There's meat served at these parties that have been sacrificed to these idols. At our party, there's it's very acceptable that heavy drinking happens. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. Maybe recreational drugs, um, maybe even open flirting, regardless of relationship status. That's acceptable. It's normalized there. We work hard in this temple, we get to play hard as well. The strong Corinthians say, look, we know that there is only one God. Idols." aren't real. So I can eat this meat without my conscience acting up. You and I say we can go to this, to this, this party, this club, because we know that we are saved by grace. Jesus alone saves us. His love, his actions, his doing. So our behavior, no matter what we do, it doesn't count toward what God thinks about us. And Paul would say to both the strong Corinthians and to you, if that's your justification, you're right, yeah, a little shocking. You're right, you were saved by grace alone. Your decisions, they do not remove you from the hand of God. You can eat that meat, you're totally correct. Your logic is theologically sound. However, says Paul, there are other people for whom Christ died. Who are confused and offended by this theological knowledge and by the way you're acting. So the question is are you acting in love? What is love? What is the relationship between knowledge and love? What is subversive about Paul's reasoning, his thinking, and what he writes today? And it's not as easy as you might think, it's not as easy as what comes up at first glance. Because essentially, if we want to sum up what Paul is saying today, he's telling the the strong Christians in Corinth, the strong, I'm not going to do that every time I say it, but the strong Christians in Corinth, he's telling us today, you can be right and still be wrong. You can be right and still be wrong. So it's a very practical topic. We're talking about the interplay between knowledge and love. What is true knowledge? What is true love? Ultimately, what is it to be consumed with how God thinks? And so I'm going to, as I read this text, there are a couple things that stand out to me about this interplay between knowledge and love. First is this. You can know something and not love it. You can know something and not love it, or someone. But you cannot love something without knowing it. You can know it and not love it, but you cannot love it without knowing it. I I made this diagram of a... uh, of a rectangle and a square. It's a virtual eye staring right at you. It's kind of like that, right? What we learned in in geometry. A square is a rectangle, true. But a rectangle is not a square. A square is a deeper form. Uh, the, The rectangle is sort of the broader category and a square is a deeper form of that. If the rectangle is knowledge, and the square is love, you have to pass through knowledge to get to love, don't you? So when you're in that square, when you're in love, you still are part of knowledge. You still know that thing. But you can just have knowledge and still not have love. You can do that as well. In another letter, uh, James, the Apostle James will write that the demons know that there is one God and they shudder. Uh, when we read the, the Gospels of Jesus, he constantly is casting out demons. And when he shows up to the demon-possessed, they also, well not all, but many of them say, we know who you are, son of the Holy One. And he tells them to be quiet. The demons know who Jesus is, but they do not love who he is. Jesus even says that. He goes, not everyone who says to me on that last day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, which is a terrifying thought, that there will be those who— know his appropriate title, who actually call him Lord, who have knowledge of him, but for some weird reason that we don't know, didn't have love of him, didn't know his love? I'm not sure. I remember one time, Anna and I, we went to a, a Turkish restaurant in Queens, and it was, it was really funny because our, our server for the, the evening was clearly someone who did not like Turkish food. <laughs> And so he's, you know how the servers come in there trying to explain to you like what are the specials and you know, he's got the knowledge and he's definitely, he's going through it and he's listing it off, but he has no ad, adju- there's just no sense, everything's delicious. It's just, it's delicious, it's delicious, it's delicious. And you're like, you clearly don't like this or you've never had it before. <laughs> it's all good, man, we, we'll take it from here. Um, but you can, you can know something, you can have knowledge of something, but not love it. But it can't work the other way around. You cannot love something without knowing it. Interestingly, in the Hebrew, the word for to know is yada, which means I know. But it's also the word, um, for the euphemism for sex. So in, in scripture, when you read uh, the Old Testament, it might just, tra- I don't know how it translates it in your Bible, but when it says um, like the man, like the classic example is Adam and Eve. Adam went into the tent and uh, he knew his wife, is how it reads. He yadad his wife but it's the euphemism meaning they had, they had intercourse. So knowledge, in the Hebrew, knowledge is, is an intimacy as well. There's an overlap of it. You can know and not love, but you cannot love without knowing. I had a friend, um, and I remember one time I was watching him take communion with his, his new wife and his, his new baby. And I was just weeping, watching him. Why was I weeping? I was weeping because I love him. And I love him because I knew his story. I had walked with him for the last couple years. I knew the chapters of his life, and all of that was filling me to such a degree that as as I watched him, love poured out toward my friend. You cannot love something without knowing it. So in the gospel, what does that look like? When Paul's talking to the Corinthian church here, when Jesus is talking to us, what does that look like? Well, he puts it in verse two and three. Paul writes, Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge. But anyone who loves God is known by God. Now maybe you caught it. He changed something up, which is a little interesting. He says anyone who claims to know something actually doesn't know it yet. But anyone who, um, anyone who loves God, and you would expect Paul to say knows God, But he doesn't, what does he say? Is known by God, he flips it. So if you go back to the the rectangle square diagram, the virtual eye looking at you, when you're just in the rectangle, when you're in the knowledge but no love portion, I am the subject and God is the object. I know about God, I know him, I know theology, I know stuff of God. But when I enter into love, something happens, it flips, it inverts. In the love portion, I actually know that God loves me. So in essence, what Paul is saying is beware of those who claim they know God. Trust those who are in awe that God loves them. This is the fundamental principle. This is the central core of the gospel. We sang about it all this morning. The central core of the good news is not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us. Every bit of knowledge, every bit of love flows out of that fundamental principle. Not that you have loved God, but that as you enter deeper into knowledge of who God is, of who Jesus is, you wake up and realize oh, shoot, He's loved me, He's come from me, He's the good Father. And I'm the child. The child doesn't love the parent first. The parent loves the child first. And out of that knowledge, that no matter what I do or don't do, I am accepted and I am adored by God. That's what gives birth to all, to true love, to true knowledge. Uh, One of my favorite books is The Brothers Karamazov. And uh, there's this scene in it, which is so powerful to me. Uh, it tells the story of three brothers, one of them named Alyosha. He's a monk, actually. Um, so he works in like as a full-time Christian. <laughs> and uh, he's he's in uh, the 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 monastery, almost called it the convent, but that wasn't right. He's in the monastery. And the interesting thing about his story is that even though he is a professional Christian, he's a monk, um, he hasn't been converted to the gospel yet. He hasn't truly experienced this fundamental principle, that it's not about his knowledge of God, it's about his acceptance of God's love of him. And there's this scene where it finally dawns on him. It it gives birth inside of him. And it says that he falls to the ground weeping. And then it has this beautiful line. It says, he longed to forgive the world for everything and to be forgiven. I think that's it. I think when you when your life is premised out of this fundamental principle, not that you have loved God or loved others, but you know you can actually stand and accept that even in your unloveliness, God has adored you and delighted in you. The appropriate response is to look out upon a broken world and say, I just wanna forgive it all for everything. And please forgive me too. Please forgive me too. That's the fundamental principle. So the first question today is, Do you know God or do you know that you are loved by him? Do you know him or do you know that you are loved by him? Paul would say to the strong Corinthians that if you aren't in the latter group, you don't fully know as you ought to know. Second thing Paul would go on to say, knowledge and love both build. Knowledge and love both build. One builds with nothing, the other builds with something. In verse one, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We've talked about that word for puff before. It's the Greek, phusio, which means think a balloon, right? Love puffs up. It blows this balloon up to a size. But love doesn't puff up. Love builds up. So if you can, imagine in your mind a house and a balloon of the exact same size, right? They both look like they are the exact same size, but the balloon is incredibly fragile. Incredibly fragile, with a, with a pinprick, it's gone. The house, it's gonna take a lot more to destroy, right? It's that idea. To build with knowledge is much easier than building with love. This is why dating is so much fun and lasting relationships are a lot harder. And maybe some of you are thinking, no, no, Russ, dating is not that fun. (laughs) True. Okay. Fair, fair. (laughs) But theoretically dating can be a lot of fun, right? And it's a lot harder to sustain a lasting relationship. Why? They're both doing the same thing. They're both knowing the other person. You're gathering knowledge about them. You're sharing knowledge about yourself. You're learning who they are. It's the exact same thing. The difference, though, is when in the dating process, you're sharing information, but you're not being vulnerable. Right? But when lasting relationships start to take form, when it stops puffing up, and I'm not saying that the first stages are puffing up. That's not true. But something shifts, and it becomes more of a hard work of building up. And I think what shifts is you no longer share information, you get vulnerable with one another. You get vulnerable, which to go back to point one is the fundamental principle. What is it? Not that I have loved God, but that I have received God's love for me. Is that not what vulnerability is? Isn't vulnerability simply opening yourself up to this other person and allowing them to wound you or to love you, but they, you don't have power over yourself in that moment, which is why, and this is a longer discussion, you can share information, even really personal information and not be vulnerable, can't you? I can tell you my life story, can make it a tearjerker, and I'm still not really letting you in. We can do that, but when, you, when I actually let you in, when I actually get vulnerable with you, I'm subjecting myself to the fundamental principle I'm subjecting myself to you, open book, open heart, saying, you have to love me. It's not about what I know about you, it's do you accept me? Do you love me? When Anna and I were building a relationship, it was cool, the sharing of the knowledge, getting to know one another, that was all good and necessary. But then, the first time we had a fight, I'm sure you all know about that. Well, not our fight, but your own fights. (laughs) I can't tell you about that fight, it's not that big a deal. Um, The first time we had a fight and then we came to one another and we repented and we asked for each other's forgiveness. In that moment, what were we doing? We were being vulnerable. In that moment, we were opening ourselves up and saying, do you still love me? Do you still choose me? And something different shifted there. Our relationship became more solid, right? Before, it was still fragile. But then, once we had opened ourselves up in vulnerability to one another and allowed the other in to name us to love us to shape us it became more solid it built up at that point another great description in the Brothers Karamazov it's a conversation between two of the brothers and they're actually debating the existence of God and one of them says you cannot prove and oh I'm sorry one of them says well I can't prove anything meaning I can't prove the existence of God but it is possible to be convinced. And the other one asks, how, by what? And he says, by the experience of active love. Try to love your neighbor actively and tirelessly. The more you succeed in loving, the more you'll be convinced of the existence of God and the immortality of your soul. And if you reach complete selflessness in the love of your neighbor, undoubtedly you will believe and no doubt will even be able to enter your soul. This has been tested, it is certain. Active love is a harsh and fearful thing compared with love and dreams. Love and dreams thirst for immediate action. It's quickly performed and with everyone watching. Indeed, it will go as far as the giving even of one's life, provided it does not take long, but is soon over as on stage and everyone is looking on and praising. What's he saying? He's saying it's sharing information, but it's not truly being vulnerable. Whereas active love, is labor and perseverance, and for some people, perhaps a whole science. And in that very moment, when you see with horror that despite all your efforts, you not only have not come nearer your goal, but you've seemed to gotten further from it, at that very moment, you will suddenly reach your goal and will clearly behold over you the wonder-working power of the Lord, who all the while has been loving you all the while has been mysteriously guiding you. What's saying? He's saying, Paul's saying to the Corinthians, they have fusio, they have knowledge of God. They have knowledge of one another, but they haven't done the hard work of being vulnerable with one another, being vulnerable with God. They haven't received the fundamental love that they didn't love God, God has loved them. So Paul quotes back to them their theology. He says, we know that no idol in the world really exists, that there is no God but one. We know that food will not bring us close to God. All of that is true. It's true. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. He affirms their theology and logic. They are correct. But someone using this knowledge as love would recite the exact same things. They would both say the same thing. The balloon in the house are the same size. The difference is that one is infused with vulnerability and a desire for the other above themselves, and the other is not. So if their knowledge about God is not leading them to consider their neighbor's well-being, their neighbor's relationship with Jesus above their own, ultimately they're wrong. You can be right and still be wrong. Husbands in the room are like, amen. That's a bad joke. (laughs) You can be right and still be wrong. Because knowledge of Jesus that doesn't lead to loving others in a vulnerable way isn't true knowledge. I remember when I entered seminary, um, it was a similar experience. The way I explained seminary for me, before seminary I had a deep love for God, deep love for God. Seminary which did a lot of great things A lot of not so great things too. But what it did, what was great, is it gave me a language for that love. It gave me a grammar. It helped me to articulate it. But, um, at least my experience, I know people have tons of different experiences. My experience, it did nothing for the love. It was all knowledge-based, really. Um, And I remember it was an interesting experience because my first year in seminary, my older brother became a Christian. I've talked about him before. Um, And my older brother was, Like he's the reason I believe in prayer. If anyone doesn't believe in prayer, pray for someone who you definitely think God can't touch. I told him this, I was like, dude, I prayed to God forever for you. But then when you actually told me that he reached you, that you you experienced his love, I didn't believe you. And so I realized I actually wasn't believing my prayers. Um, But yeah, so he became a Christian. And so that first year, he and I, we would um, read scripture together, Uh, we'd talk about Jesus. And my brother had tremendous love. He had experienced the fundamental principle. He had experienced the acceptance of God. We didn't have a language for it. So his theology was eh, you know? It was a little eh. And I, on the other hand, I was being given the tools of theological masters, right? So I knew how to love God. And I still remember one moment where I don't even remember what we were talking about, but basically I corrected him. And I corrected him in a way that I kind of wanted to demonstrate that I knew more than he did, and I could see it wounded him, and I just felt clear as day, God say, you fool. (laughs) You fool. No, 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 you're wrong. You have theology. He has love. He's actually more right than you are in this instance, and I was so convicted. Knowledge and love both build. One builds with nothing. other builds with something love is greater than knowledge because love is built off of vulnerability and this is where it gets a little hairy in the passage this is where it gets a little hairy and a little scary because paul goes on to write and he says be careful however that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak for if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple won't that person be emboldened To eat what is sacrificed to idols? So, this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. And when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. This is commonly interpreted as the stumbling block principle. (laughs) You may have heard of it. The stumbling block principle says this, don't do anything that causes your brother or sister to question Jesus, right? Don't do anything that causes them to question Jesus. But this text is often interpreted to mean that there are some of us, not you of course, but there are some of us who are rigid legalists, right? Who uh, they are offended by the legitimate freedom we have in Christ. They don't like dancing and they don't like cards. Who does? Who does? Don't come to the fifth Sunday. We're having a dance party. But they don't like dancing. They don't like cards. And so in the name of not being a stumbling block for them, Christians become constrained by the weak consciences of other Christians. As Richard Hayes says, the result is that the entire Christian community is held hostage to the standards of the most narrow-minded and legalistic members of the church. That's how this text is usually interpreted. And that is not at all what Paul is saying. Paul is asking you to do something infinitely harder than that. He's asking you to love them, to love them. And to love people is not to concede to them, but to lead them to a deeper realization that God loves them before anything else, that they have not earned his love and they cannot lose his love which means why it's so hard is love can't be a set of rules. Love is a relationship and that sounds so trite, right? So obvious, but I think any of us who actually allow that to sink in knows how hard that is. I can't give you a set of rules of the right decision in the right moment. That's why Christianity is so hard because it's different It's not like religion that gives you rules and logic to follow and knowledge to to gather up. It's not that. It's, It's inviting you into a relationship with God and with others where there are no rules, where you're free based on that prior love of God through Jesus. And now the task levied on all of us is to love people well. And the reality is, is that anything can become an idol. Idols are simply fixed statements. Idols are are obvious, they're things that I can possess and claim as my own without vulnerability. Knowledge about God can become an idol, it became so with the Corinthians. Religion can become an idol. Even Christianity itself can become an idol if we're not being vulnerable with God and one another. So if the stumbling block principle is, don't do anything that causes your neighbor to question Jesus, perhaps love And I say this with a lot of care. Love, the most loving thing for them to do might be to help them to question Jesus. That might be the most loving thing in order to that they can get a right understanding that it's not by their questions or answers that they are loved or saved. It's by Jesus alone. Rob Bell says, I know, I'm quoting Rob Bell. You know where I'm going with this. Um, And if you don't get that joke, you will in due time. (laughs) Everyone is cool with you saying, love your neighbor. Everyone's cool with that. But when you start doing it, people get squirmy. To say it is to possibly make it an idol. To say it is to make it a fixed statement. That's awesome. It's knowledge. But to do it is to be very afraid and probably misunderstood. Because you don't know what form it's going to take. I can't give you a rule for how to love someone, how to seek their flourishing, how to build them up in their vulnerability. The relationship is the rule. So if I could sum it up, I would say this, whatever helps the person before you to know that God entered into the world and died for them just as they are right now, this very day, because he loved them and because he wanted to be with them. Do that. Whatever helps the person before you to know that God entered into the world, died for them just as they are, because he loved them and could not imagine being without them, do that. To return to the example of my brother, We're from North Carolina, and we grew up in a Baptist household, um, which simply means, um, well, it means lots of things, but sometimes the Baptists do amazing stuff and they have a lot right. Sometimes rules can become more central, sometimes. And so where we grew up, um, drinking was a bit of a stigma, all right? And I only only preface it this way, it'll make sense once we get into the story. Um, My brother, when he became a Christian, he came out of a hardcore partying lifestyle, like hardcore. Um, So anything associated with that lifestyle, it was so tender to him, he wanted nothing to do with it. I, my first drinking buddy was when I was 21, studying in London and I was an intern at Wesley's Chapel and it was with the pastor. My first drinking buddy was a pastor, guys. Um, We would go to the, the pub three blocks away sometimes And we'd we'd have a meal and we'd share a beer and we'd talk about life and politics and love and and talk with people. So my associations with it are really good associations of flourishing and life and community. But when my brother became a Christian, I knew that where he was coming out of, it was so tender to him, um, I didn't drink around him at all. That was the most loving thing I could do for him, for where he was, for what he was learning for the God that he was encountering and the love he was experiencing. But then there came a point, and I don't know when it happened, but there came a point based on our conversations and our discipling of one another, where I knew the most loving thing I could do for him was to have a drink. And I can't explain that, other than it was starting to veer toward this place of, um, it was starting to veer to this unhealthy place. And so in order to remind him that the reason why he's loved is not because of what he does or does not do, not because of his actions or the actions he avoids, but simply because of who Jesus is, that was the most loving thing I could do for my brother in that moment. So whatever helps someone to experience that fundamental principle that they are chosen by God before they ever chose God, do that. So if food doesn't help them, says Paul, to marvel at how much Jesus loves them and wants them, I will never eat meat, and this is where it gets even, it gets worse here, <laughs> because in verse one, he uses the word edoluthotone, which means uh, meat sacrificed to idols, so he's talking this whole discussion about meat sacrificed to idols, but then in verse 13, he says, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat, and the word he uses for meat there is kreos, which is a much more generic word for meat. So in essence, what Paul is saying is, if that's causing them to stumble, not only will I forgo meat sacrifice to idols, but I'll forgo meat altogether because my heart is dominated with the reception of the love of my God and love for them. So what does this mean when we're talking about loving others? It means sometimes you have to give something up, but also sometimes you have to pick something up. And sometimes you have to stay silent, but sometimes you have to speak. And sometimes you mourn, and sometimes you have to laugh. And sometimes you just go with the flow, and sometimes you don't. But every time, though I am a servant of no human, I make myself a servant of every human so that by any means possible, I may save some. Though I am a servant of no human, I am free in Christ, who the sunset has set free is free indeed. I am free, though I am a servant of no human, I make myself the servant of every human, so that by any means possible, you too will see that the world is built off of the fundamental principle. The world has not loved God, God has loved the world such that even when you were still God's enemies, God came for you. We are the object in this world. We are not the subject of knowledge. We don't gather knowledge. We don't love. We are the object. First and foremost, we are the receptacles of the love of the creator. And when that starts dawning in you, when that starts giving birth in you, you are fully and totally accepted, it just, it creates that sense of, I just want to forgive the world for everything and to be forgiven. I'm totally free, and yet I feel like I want to use that freedom and service to the entire world so that you can know how great this love is as well, so that you can know that though I am not your servant, I will become your servant, so that you can know that God has loved you. Who can say something like that? Well, one who knows that he knows nothing except that while he was still God's enemies, God gave everything to be with him. I want to invite the worship team back up. I ask you to close your eyes. Let's pray together. Lord, I don't know who's in this room. I don't know where people are coming from. I do know that every one of our temptations, whether we've received your love or not, is to think that we have to earn it again. It's to think that by our behavior, by what we do or what we don't do, you are pleased or disappointed with us. Would you banish that thought from us today? That is not your gospel. Your gospel is that where we are right now, this very moment, you are standing with your arms outstretched saying, I love you. I love you, I accept you, come to the table. If you're here and you've never experienced that, if you've never heard of Christianity spoken of in that way, would you consider it? This is not a faith about what we do. This is entirely a story about what Jesus has done. And he's done it all for you, for me. We have not loved God, God has loved us. Would you receive that today? Would you yield, lay down your barriers and defenses and receive the love of God. We all need that, Lord. For many of us who have received that that fundamental principle, that, that first love of yours, and we're struggling to figure, what does it mean to love others? What does it mean to be loved by others? Would you encourage vulnerability in us? Would you encourage us to not be cynical? to not be afraid or skeptical of one another, but to truly see the person before us as you see them and to love them, to do whatever best helps them understand that you are pleased with them, which will be very hard. There is not a rule for that. It'll look different in different situations, but it will always be selfless it will always be putting the other before us, before ourselves. Because that's the mindset of you, God. When you were completely perfect, you still created a world. You didn't need it. It was an overflow of your love. And then even when the world had rejected you, turned away from you, you still came in the overflow of your love and your grace, and you reconciled the world back to you. We stand in awe of your love today. So with each person here, would you encourage them not to do anything, but just to receive, to receive. Receive the love of Jesus today. Holy Spirit, minister to your people. Receive the love of your creator. and out of the overflow of that acceptance. Just do what seems right (laughs) to put others before yourself. We confess, Jesus, that this is a much more terrifying thought that we wish we had rules. But you have set us free. Love binds us together. So we thank you for this truth. We ask for the deepening of your love it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for tuning into this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.